Well, good morning and uh, welcome to a special day here at our church as we are, first of all, worshiping Jesus. And uh, secondly, we are going to be uh, dedicating, rededicating, I should say, this space to the glory of God and the service of his kingdom. And we'll do that after the message here this morning. I want to uh, greet our other campuses joining us here today and to say uh, good morning to you. Thank you for your prayers for the Crown Point campus as we've been working through this transition. I also want to say a a brief welcome. It was mentioned earlier that uh, we have some members of the youth ministry from Grace Community Church in Hudsonville, Michigan that are here. I think they're in the balcony if I uh, saw them heading that way. And in, in 19... 91, I was a youth intern at Grace Community Church in Hudsonville, Michigan. And so that church has a little part in my story, and I remain very thankful for them. And uh, so great to have you here with us. As we come into God's Word now, I mentioned two weeks ago that Romans 8 is moving us towards the deep end of the doctrinal pool. And with the arrival today in Romans 8.29, we are officially over our heads. As the Apostle Paul explains now the inner workings of the mind of God in how he went about saving sinners and glorifying his son. Now hang with me here. Saving sinners and glorifying his son. Can I ask you this question? Did I get that order right? Can I ask you this question? Which would you say was the first priority in the mind of God? Saving sinners or glorifying his son? Or is it glorifying his son and saving sinners? Okay, now, so I'm going to ask you to vote. How? Actually, I'm not going to. I said that because I wanted to really actually force you to say which one do I think it is. And the reason that I, that I say that is uh, the order that you put those two priorities in is going to largely determine whether or not you have a hard time with Romans 9, 10, and 11, because that's what's coming. And uh, what you prioritize, is it, is, it, is it primarily about saving sinners and glorifying the Son, or is it primarily about glorifying the Son and saving sinners. Is it about sinners or is it about him? And there's your little clue as to which I think it is and where we're likely going. Today's text, though, is going to introduce to us three very important biblical concepts, uh, biblical truths. Here they are, foreknowledge, predestination, and Christ-likeness. Those are three big words, aren't they? I lost half of you already, just saying the three words. But let me say them again. Foreknowledge, predestination, and Christ-likeness. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to touch briefly on the first two because Romans 9 is going to be the deep dive on on that truth. And I'm going to spend most of the message today on Christ-likeness. Okay, on Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness is the end goal of God's purpose in our lives. So let me read now. I'm going to begin in verse 28, which was our text for uh, Easter last week. And I'm going to continue on into verse 30, which verse 30 will be next week's message. But here's what Romans 8 says. And we know that for those who love God, 
all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. May God bless his word to us today. And, and if, we, if we spent two weeks on Romans 8.28, and if we did that verse any service at all, it ought to go down in all of our minds as one of our favorite verses in all of the Bible. But notice the end of verse 28. It says this, For those who are called according to his purpose. And when we looked at that, we saw that this is not just the general call that God makes to to any who will come and believe, but the more specific call that God makes to those who actually do. This is the summoning call of God. This is, uh, in a way, what Jesus did at the grave of Lazarus when he said, Lazarus, come forth. The call of Jesus created what he summoned. It created life in Lazarus. Without Jesus' call, Lazarus would never have been raised from the dead. And without God's call, none of us would ever believe. We are called according to, notice, his purpose. Okay? Who are we talking about there? God's purpose? God's will? God's plan? Yes, indeed. Is this... So unusual that God would do all of this according to a plan. I mean, here we are today, we're, we're rededicating this uh, auditorium. We've seen a little video of some of the uh, work that was done. Did you know that before all those little worker bees, like ants, were doing all their things, before they brought in the steel beams and all the different works, did you know that there was a plan? In fact, wouldn't you be disappointed if you found out that we just made this up as we went? And wouldn't you in the balcony be getting a little bit nervous right now about whether <laughs> this is actually going to hold you up or not? What do you mean there was no plan? They never, they never consulted a structural engineer in this thing? What a joke. Should we be so surprised that God, prior to doing the most complex thing that has ever been done, had a plan and a purpose that all of the things and the activities of God saving us through Jesus, he enacted according to the plan. This all began in the mind of God. God had a plan. God had a purpose. And what Paul is doing here in Romans 8 is he is giving us a glimpse into the architectural mind of God. The plans by which God redeemed humanity and glorified his son. So our verse today, our text is verse 29. Let me just repeat it. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So the verse begins with that word for. That means this is a continuing flow of thought. Those he foreknew are the same group of people as referred to in verse 28 who love God and who are called according to his purpose. So these are not three different groups of people. These are three ways of defining the same group of people. Okay? He's talking here about genuine Christians, authentic believers in Jesus. This is not true for every single human being that has ever lived, but those that are under the grace of God. 
The Bible calls these the people of God, the elect, the church. These are all New Testament words for the same group. But the question is, how did then the people of God come to be the people of God? Were we just born people of God? No, Romans 1 told us we were born under the wrath of God. So how do we go from the wrath of God to the grace of God? How do we go from not being the people of God to being the people of God? And this verse explains it. And the next verse does as well. And we're going to get into this next week. I'm going to read this again just so you see the flow of thought here. And those whom, so he goes on from conforming to the likeness of his son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So you see there's a progression there. Okay, not only a progression of thought and plan, but a a progression of the enactment of the plan. Now here in a little bit, we're going to have the construction manager of this whole project up here on the stage. And if you see who he is, if after the service you, you catch him and you say to him, how did you build this auditorium expansion? He might say this, well, we started with plans, and according to those plans, we demolished And where we demolished, we built, and where we built, we completed. The plan became a reality. And that's exactly what verse 30 is telling us, is that God had a plan, and then he did this, and then he did this, and then he did this, and then it was completed, glorified. And that's what Romans 8 is explaining to us. But it does so with these words and ideas that are honestly hard to understand, And I would submit to you that we should be glad that it's hard to understand. We're going to have the the architect up here in a little bit of this whole project. And if you catch him after the service and you say, hey, give me some of the technical details behind the the way that you you designed this this balcony and all the expanding and all of that. I guarantee you, unless you are yourself an architect, he would tie you up in knots with load-bearing limits and, you know, technical this, that, and the other. I can't even come up with the words. I don't even know what the words are. He would come up with the words, and we wouldn't know what they meant anyway, but you would think this guy's really smart. He understands all these deeper concepts about design, structure, and building. How much more the mind of God, the infinite mind of God, doing something way more difficult than this should we be that surprised that to explain even on a human level that we maybe can understand that there are concepts that are difficult to grasp this is not a detriment this is a compliment to God we should be glad that there are things that are hard for us to understand and two of those are here in verse uh, verse 29 foreknowledge and predestination now those are both words with a lot of letters in it Please do not be intimidated by that, and I'm going to try to explain both of these briefly. Again, I'm saving most of this for Romans 9 when we get there, but he says in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, foreknew, this is a word that means what it sounds like. He pre-knew, he knew beforehand. Post-knew would be to know something afterwards. That's the way that we know things. We rarely know something in advance. We know things after they happen, right? And we, 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 we uh, have discovered what happened. That's how we operate. We can maybe imagine things in our mind, like, 
for a long time, I imagined having a wife, and I imagined having uh, children. But they were imaginary, and I never knew if they were actually going to be real. Praise God they are. Amen. We meet people and we say, oh, I know them. I know them now because I've met them. If somebody says they knew someone before they met them or before they existed, we would call them a liar or delusional at best. But here now, how, how is God not a liar and not delusional to say that he foreknew people before they existed? And this now comes to how uh, who God is and how he relates to creation to realize that God created time, that God transcends time, that all of it is a present now to him. He is not bound by minutes and seconds and months and years. He, he is above all of that. And so these temporal designations don't apply to him. He sees the beginning and the end all at once. So here's the definition of foreknowledge from our, our uh, trusted advisor, Wayne Grudem. Those whom long ago God thought of in a saving relationship to himself. Those whom long ago God thought of in terms of a saving relationship to himself. Christian, think of this a moment with me. If you're a genuine Christian here today, this is saying that God started thinking about you a long time ago. And he didn't start thinking about you in terms of, uh, of merely judgment or your sin. He started thinking about you long ago. In fact, Ephesians 1 tells us, before the foundations of the world. Amen. He began thinking about you in a kind of saving way. Like that individual right there, that person right there, I'm, that's somebody that I'm going to redeem. I am I'm planning, I am purposing how to redeem you. Would that be comforting to you that Almighty God's been thinking about you for a really long time? And thinking about you in, in, a, in a kind of way that ultimately leads to your salvation? That's foreknowledge. Now, I don't want you to think about it this way. And there are many people that do, and there's even some, you know, I'd say good people that do. In fact, this is the way it was explained to me back in the day. I don't agree with this, so don't take this as how to do it. But some people will say, foreknowledge is God looking down the, 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 the tunnel of time and seeing in advance people who are going to believe. And then, on the basis of him knowing that they are someday going to believe, destining them to salvation. Now, what's the problem with that? Here's the problem. If I asked you in, in, in a vacuum, I said, does God know everything? Like if I asked my daughters that, we have a little catechism, they know the answer to this. Yes, God knows everything. We would all affirm that God knows everything, right? God never has to go down, look forward, and discover something. <laughs> he never, God never learns anything, okay? He already knows it all. Foreknowledge is not foreseeing something. Foreknowledge is in terms of relationship. In fact, it says, notice, those whom, okay, whom he predestined. He's not, he's not knowing faith, that would be an it. He is knowing people whom he 
foreknew. God knows it all. So foreknowledge is God knowing or thinking of us in terms of a saving relationship. Foreknowing, forethinking, can I say it this way? Foreloving. Loving us way back then. We come to know things, okay? We, 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 many of you are in school. We got this youth group. They're all in school. Can't wait to get there tomorrow, can you? Oh, another day of learning. That's how children get up and young people get up. Hey, it's another day of school. They bound to school. They can't wait to learn something. God's never learned anything. This is the doctrine of omniscience. He never learns anything. In fact, his relationship to reality is completely different than ours. Here's what St. Augustine said. And I'm going to read this twice because this is one of those where you got to kind of go, hmm, okay. So here's what it says. We know things because they are, but things are because God knows them. We know things because they are. That's science. God, or things are because God knows them. Now this is not a perfect analogy. But I can tell you confidently that we loved our daughters before we met them. From the moment the little, it went blue on the little test. Like from that moment, all of a sudden, this thing, woo, filled into my heart. I love this, you know, you, know, you go to the, the ultrasound and you know, there's this child you love and, and you know, here's this little you know, alien inside. And, and <laughs> do not make the mistake of getting the three-dimensional ultrasound you'll think an alien has invaded your wife's body like that's not my child but from the moment we found out we were pregnant months before I met my daughters I loved them already I loved them in advance in a much more dramatic and eternal sense God thought of you Dear Christian, long before you showed up, before he even created the universe, he was thinking of you in terms of someone that he purposes to save. Please see this as one of a thousand indications that salvation does not begin with man. Salvation begins with God. He is building here, and Romans 8.30 is going to be awesome. He's building a foundation upon which he wants his people to know and to be assured that they are actually saved. Which leads to the second concept here. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Another big word. I can't tell you how many times over the years as a pastor I've had people that have come up to me and one of their questions is, do you believe in predestination? And I don't remember anybody, anybody's name or anybody's face in particular, so if this was you, I don't remember you doing this to me. I just want to say that. Can I just say that that is one of the most ignorant questions that somebody could ask? Why do I say that? Because predestination is a biblical term. <laughs> like, it's not like we have the choice of whether we believe in predestination or not. 
it's not a question of, of whether it's true or not. It's more a question of definition, okay? Because it's there in the Bible, here and in other places. How do I define it? What does it mean? In fact, I heard a lecture, R.C. Sproul did a lecture entitled, Everyone Believes This Doctrine. And indeed, everybody does, but they define it differently. It's so repeated, you can't not believe in predestination. But again, I'm going to put this on the warmer for Romans 9, okay? But here's what I will say is this. Uh, that foreknowledge is God thinking of us in advance in terms of a saving, loving relationship. Predestination is God thinking and purposing in advance our final destination. So foreknowledge is him thinking about us in terms of his plan to save us. Predestination is God thinking about how that plan is going to lead us ultimately to heaven and the new earth, the glorified body and all the rest. It is a pre determined destination is the definition of it and you know again we do this kind of thing all the time whenever you go on a trip you are you are predestining you are deciding i'm going to go you know i'm going to dallas i'm i'm going to indianapolis i'm going whatever that is and nowadays of course you pull it up you type it into your your phone you gps it okay we make that a verb now you got to gps that okay uh we GPS it, we, we, this is the destination, and now the map app tells me how to get there. We call it mapping, God calls it predestination. He is pre-planning our final destination, and there is a lot more coming on that, so you stay tuned. Because what I want to really spend my time on is this third concept, which is, what destination is God pre-planning? What is the purpose for which we are called, verse 28, what is the good he is working everything for in our lives, verse 28, now verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now I'll bet you didn't see that coming. I'll bet you did not expect that to be like where this, because we think this, I mean the whole point of this is to get us to heaven. Like, that's the big thing God's doing in salvation, is he wants to get me to heaven. Wrong. Now, that is one of the things that happen. But that's not the big goal. That's not why God's going to all this trouble. What is it? Christ's likeness. Christ's likeness. The good of verse 28, which again, we want to think is all things are working together for good. It's my health. It's my wealth. It's my happiness. It's satisfying relationships, obedient children, great vocation, happiness every day. God's in heaven saying, no, 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 that's not the goal. I am doing what I am doing in your life to conform you to the likeness of my son, Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Okay, first of all, let's just make sure we all, because again, this is, friend, listen, this is what God's doing in your life. You ever wonder, like, God, why is this happening? Why is that happening? I don't understand this. And we cry out to God, why? And God's in heaven going, Romans 8, 29, read your Bible. <laughs> I'm conforming you to the likeness of Jesus. I wonder, are you disappointed to hear that? Does this feel a little bit like a bait and switch that God plays on us? Like, I, I trusted in Jesus so I wouldn't go to hell. The big purpose of, of the gospel is me not going to hell. And God's in heaven going, no, the big purpose is to conform you to the likeness of Jesus. And I would submit to you, if that is a disappointment to you, 
is Jesus really your Savior? I mean, really. Like, if that is disappointing to you, have you really grappled with what it means for Jesus to be your Lord and King, to be the hero of your story? The image of his son, the word there in the Greek is icon. It's like uh, art, you know, art that oftentimes will resemble something else. And so you go to the Chicago Art Museum and uh, you see pictures of, you know, here's a, here's a pond with lilies and here's a, um, you know, bread on a table and uh, here is a sunset with mountains. And the, the artist was making this look like that. It is an icon, an image a resemblance. We talk about a portrait, okay? A portrait of somebody is something that is made to look like somebody else. This piece of canvas now is being made to look like the person that I am painting the portrait of. I remember a few years ago, Queen Elizabeth. Do you remember this? They, they uh, commissioned like her whatever 95th year, or whatever year it was, portrait. And she posed for it. The artist painted it. They kept it under lock and key. They unveiled it at this very sort of glamorous event, the new portrait of Queen Elizabeth. And she saw the portrait, and you could see her face go like this. <laughs> she didn't like it. It was not flattering. It's never been seen again. This is similar to the uh, concept of a, of a doppelganger. Have you heard of this phrase? A doppelganger is, the, the, the idea here is that everybody looks like somebody famous. Okay, so uh, the, who's your doppelganger? Or it doesn't have to be somebody famous. It could just be, you know, some guy down the street. Boy, those two people, they, they look a lot alike. They are each other's doppelganger. And I, this is another picture of what, Paul's talking about here, and it's something that I grapple with all the time, because uh, there are a few people, famous people, that I look like, and people oftentimes will bring this up to me. And so, just to clear the air, okay, and, and here's the doppelganger I hear all the time. So... <laughs> I want to clear this up. I am not Chris Hemsworth, okay? And I'm sure he there in Hollywood hears all the time, you look a lot like Steve DeWitt. So take that down, please. What am I doing here? I'm, I'm wanting to convince you that resembling somebody else in a portrait, a reflection, can be a glorious thing. If the other person that you are striving to resemble is the most glorious person of all. In fact, wanting to resemble the current it person dominates our culture right now. So you have, you know, somebody becomes popular and they begin wearing, you know, XYZ clothes or shoes or hairdo, tattoo, whatever it is. All of a sudden, what do you see? All kinds of people at the mall and at the university and, and around town. And what are they doing? They're wearing the same clothes as that person. They're talking the way that he or she talks. They're dressing the way that he or she dresses. Why? 
because they are deriving importance from their perception of that person being really important. You can go to a, to a Bears football game, and there are 60,000 people sitting at the Bears football game in the stands, and they are wearing jerseys with names of their favorite player. In any other culture, at any other time, that would be viewed as silly. But at Soldier Field, it's really cool and uh, costs you about 125 bucks. <laughs> but what are they doing with that? And what is the teenager that's striving for acceptance doing by deriving importance from the perception of the importance of the other person? They are seeking to resemble the it person. It is a derived identity, a derived value. And now we go back to Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Friends, is that good news? It is good news for the Christian that our identity is in Christ and our identity is from Christ. That we have this derived glory, this derived value. It is a wonderful thing. It will be a wonderful thing for you if you think Jesus is wonderful. To understand that God in eternity past had a plan by which he was purposing to shape and form my character and my, my life and my values, my words, my heart, my service. God has purposed in eternity past to make every single person under his grace a little Jesus Jr. To conform us to the likeness of the most wonderful person who has ever lived. And again, I would say to you, if today that doesn't sound that exciting, is Jesus really your Savior? Like, really? Do you get what it means for him to be your Savior, Lord, and King? Because it's fantastic news to hear that God is doing this. In fact, this is the large goal that God has. I can hear people quietly scorning Christians. Oh, they, those Jesus, they're Bible thumper, Jesus people. Oh, I can't believe that they would be so concerned about somebody else. And then you go to their house and it's all shiplap because Joanna Gaines said it was cool. <laughs> what do we say? You're a hypocrite and you are settling for something that is so far less than the glory of being made into the likeness of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So friend, who do you want to be like? Young person, who is your hero really? Really. Friends, this is Jesus. Who else is worthy of us desiring to resemble? How can we see this as anything but great news? Now let me clarify a couple things because you might be thinking to yourself, okay, wait, Christ-likeness is kind of a new thing for me. I'm more familiar with words like holiness or sanctification. Friend, realize these are all the same thing. Okay, look at it this way. Here's a little, uh, a little, a little uh, graph here. I think so. Is it coming? It's not coming. Here's what it means. Sanctification equals holiness equals Christ-likeness. To read 1 Thessalonians 4.3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now you can read that and go, oh, I thought it was that I would be Christ-like. Wait, that's the same thing. These are all similar concepts. Which leads to the question, how do we conform to the likeness of Christ? And our time is fleeting here, but just one verse that summarizes how this happens is 2 Corinthians 
It says this, and we, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Through the gospel and by the grace of God, a Christian is somebody who sees in Jesus a kind of glory. Paul also talks in that passage about how the the scales come off of our eyes. We are able to perceive in Jesus not just a religious story, not just an inspiring story, but a saving story and a saving person. We perceive who he is in his life, his death, his resurrection. We behold the glory of God. And it leads us, by the grace of God, to put our hope and our trust in him. And as we've seen in Romans, when that happens, the Spirit of God comes and indwells us. Our eyes are open to the beauty of Christ. And the Christian life is an ongoing experience of beholding, of seeing the glory of Christ. How do we do that? Primarily through Scripture, but through a lot of other ways. As we see God's spirit at work within the community of faith and relationships with one another, as we see other people coming to salvation, as we ourselves increasingly savor Jesus and want in our hearts and our lives for his values, his perspectives, his attitudes to be shaped in us so that I increasingly resemble Jesus, we are being changed progressively. None of us arrived there. We are in the process like a stock, up and down. We have up, good days and up days, but a good stock is trending this direction. Is your life trending the direction of likeness to Jesus Christ? But as we saw in Romans 7, none of us gets there completely. We all have indwelling sin. And so, you know, we all are sort of these contradictions, these living contradictions. But the Bible says there's coming a time when we will all instantly be perfectly made in the likeness of Christ. Here's 1 John 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And that moment of resurrection and the glorified body will be for every genuine Christian. Instant and full Christ-likeness. Our moral character will be perfect. Our inclination towards sin will be completely eradicated. No more struggle with sin. No more struggle with me and self and me. (laughs) Our worship will forever and completely be all about him. Final question in the message today. Why does the Father purpose to make us like his Son? Like, if this is the big thing that he's been purposing before the foundations of the world, like, why, God the Father, are you doing this? And the simple answer is this, friends. God loves his son. He loves his son. Far more perfectly than any human parent has ever loved a child, God the Father loves the son. And yet, even human parents, what do we enjoy doing? We enjoy looking at pictures of our kids. This has come home to me as being a parent now. I've been a parent for coming on six years. And for the last almost six years, if Jennifer and I ever get like a date 
thing, you know, got a babysitter, we can get away, you know, you get in the car, some of your parents know this feeling, it's like, I'm free, you know, there's no, there's no, you know, nobody's in the back, are you clicked in, I'm thirsty, you know, none of that. It's quiet, it's wonderful, we, we pull out away from the house and it's like, you know, the world is our oyster, we can do anything we want, there's no constraints at all. We head off to some diner somewhere, we sit down, we, we look at the menu, we look at each other, and then we start looking at pictures of the girls. <laughs> Sometimes I think, are we just insane? Why are we... I mean, we're, so, we're free from them, and yet we're not free from them. What are we? We love them. Oh, we love them. Young people, your parents love you way more than you could even begin to realize. And as much as they love you, God the Father loves the Son. And because he loves the Son, he delights in pictures of his Son. So much so that in eternity past, he thought of a plan and a purpose, if I can say it this way, to create an eternity where heaven and the new earth are peopled by little pictures of his glorious son, resembling him with moral and spiritual perfection, high definition, glorious living, breathing doppelgangers of the glorious and preeminent Son of God. And friends, all the trials and all the troubles in life that you and I both experience, all the sermons and all the services and all the ministries and all the prayers and all the penance, all the everything of our lives, part and parcel of God loving us in eternity past, so he could love us in eternity future, that we might be like the perfect son of God, Jesus Christ. And for Christians, there is no better news than that.